Hello, everyone. In this week's podcast, we have not one, but two special guests. First, we have best-selling author Kevin Kwan here to talk to us about sex and vanity, his latest novel. Next, we have Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft telling us about how he coordinates the massive job of running elections and about the Missouri State Library. So let's get started and learn a little more about sex and vanity. In 2013, Kevin Kwan's first novel, Crazy Rich Asians, which became an international bestseller and popular Kirkwood book club pick, has also been translated into 13 languages. Then in 2018, the movie adaptation of the book became the highest grossing romantic comedy of the decade. Kevin Kwan joins us on the KPL podcast to discuss his latest book, Sex and Vanity. Welcome, Kevin. So happy to have you. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. I didn't know I was a popular book book club pick. You were. We, your uh, Crazy Rich Asians and the other books in the trilogy were very popular for our Kirkwood. Uh, we have like several book clubs uh, that we do. And when the movie first came out, it was, yeah, the books were everywhere. They were hard to get a hold of, actually, even. Huh. Yeah, multiple uh, uh, clubs of ours had, had picked that. And it was, uh, it was the talk of the town. I wish I'd known. I, I would have, you know, tried to make it to a book club or call in or, you know, I, I really love interacting with book clubs. I think it's one of my favorite things to do. So next time that happens, let me know. Oh, definitely. Will do. All right. So for our patrons, would you tell us a little bit about yourself and without spoilers, a bit about sex and vanity? Oh, gosh. Um, a bit about myself. Um, I am a writer. <laughs> I write novels, and they are highly satirical, you know, sort of comedic novels that really look at the foibles of society and families. And this book is, is really no different from that. Um, Sex and Vanity is my homage to one of my favorite books ever, E.M. Forster's A Room of a View. And it begins on the island of Capri, where my heroine, Lucy Tang Churchill, um, who is a biracial American. Her mother is Chinese, and her father comes from a very, very waspy Mayflower establishment family. She goes to Capri to attend a childhood friend's wedding, and there she meets a very mysterious, aloof young man named George Zhao, who is from Hong Kong. And of course, she is instantly attracted to him because he is the, the Chinese version of Chris Hemsworth. Um, <laughs> but she Adorable. Does, exactly. But she does everything in her power to resist that attraction. So how's that for a starter? Oh, that sounds nice. a pretty good starter. <laughs> Authors are always the worst at describing their own books. I never know what to say. <laughs> No, I was going to say, and somehow yet you encapsulated it perfectly, I thought. Thank you. Um, I don't think my publicist would have felt the same way. <laughs> so you mentioned that the book is an homage to Room with a View by Ian Forrester. So could you tell us a little bit more about that particular connection and how that came about? Well, I discovered that book back in high school. Um, everyone cool at school was reading it. So I felt like I had to read it too. I think it was around the time the movie had come out. And if I don't know if you're familiar with the movie, A Room of a View, but it was directed by James Ivory, produced by Ismail Merchant. And it was sort of the, the first big Merchant Ivory film. And it became a blockbuster of sorts for the genre that really paved the way, you know, for, for things like Downton Abbey to exist today. You know, it was an amazing sort of um, country house satire. And I found it so interesting because 
Forster was able to really kind of socially deconstruct and satirize this crowd of privileged Brits. Um, in, pic in particular, this phenomenon of the British, you know, doing the grand tour. You know, they would go to Europe and they would visit all these key cities, you know, to culture themselves. And so Lucy was taken to Italy, um, to Florence, in the original A Room of a View, to sort of, you know, get to know the land and to do the grand tour. Um, my Lucy is in a very different world, of course. It's been 100 years, more than 100 years later. And um, she's different, you know, dealing with a whole different set of problems in her life. But I just felt it was a good place to sort of begin um, and use it as a departure point to tell my story. Yeah, I think it draws great parallels between the two stories. Thank you. I also love the idea of all the kids reading at Room with a View back in school. There's certainly worse peer pressure back, in, back when I was a kid. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I, was, um, I did a talk with a very um, prestigious sort of group of literary people. Um, <laughs> that's, I'm trying to like keep them as anonymous as possible. And they were, they were actually really surprised too. He was, they were like, what, you know, kids in Texas were reading a room of you. And I was like, yeah, they sure were. I mean, we, you know, it, it was, it was Texas, but you know, we were, I guess maybe I was in a crowd of a very curious literary kids and we were reading Aldous Huxley and Ian Forster and Brett Easton Ellis and, you know, anything we could find that would really sort of expand our world. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, so your books are set in the most gorgeous of places like Singapore for Crazy Rich Asians. How did you decide on Capri for Sex and Bandit? Well, it begins with my love affair of Italy, which in a way is tied to Room of the View. You know, after reading and seeing the movie of Room of the View, I, I desperately wanted to go to Italy. And so a few years later, I was able to convince my parents, you know, to, to take me to Italy and do plan a family trip there. And that's when we all discovered Capri, which is just this enchanted, enchanted little island, you know, in the off the Amalfi Coast. Um, it's a little spit of volcanic rock, but within this tiny island, there's so much history, archaeology and beauty and culture. It's, it's pretty astonishing. Um, it's a microcosm of society. There's, you know, all these different tribes of people that gather there every summer, you know, from the international jet set to royalty to, you know, a lot of sort of academic geniuses, a lot of writers had, had homes there, you know, Shirley Hazard lived there, Graham Greene spent time there, Pablo Neruda also lived there for a few years. So it has this, you know, grand literary tradition. And so I was really inspired by this beautiful island. And, you know, really, it was my excuse to go to Italy and write a book there. <laughs> that didn't end up happening, but <laughs> the idea was there to do that. Very nice. I've been stalking you on Instagram and have seen some of the pictures that you had posted of Capri there and oh, they're absolutely gorgeous. So, Thank so you. Sadly, all from past trips, you know, um, would have been nice to be there right now. And, you know, but um, we can always armchair travel through Instagram. Yes, <laughs> that's basically what I've been doing ever since this whole virus thing started. Yeah, I, I myself looked into like well, one of those travel documentaries for Capri and oh my goodness, it was so gorgeous. I, we need to get rid of this pandemic, if nothing else, just to be able to see and, and experience other cultures again. Absolutely. But your main character, Lucy, is biracial. What drew you to write a uh, Hapa character? Did I say that right, Hapa? Yeah, fantastic. Um, I don't know if Hawaiians would agree with my correct pronunciation, but I think it's just Papa. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I felt it was really kind of, for me, the next step in my evolution as a writer. You know, I had I'd spent almost 10 years writing this trilogy 
that was set in deep Asia. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it, my mm -hmm. Crazy Rich Asians trilogy really delves into this very, very complicated, very old generational family in Singapore that has roots to Hong Kong and Thailand and the Philippines and all that. And I wanted to now, you know, really set a character that was in the United States. But how to tell an interesting story you know, that would be meaningful, that also looked at some of the, um, the sort of the racial issues that exist. And I, I felt it was important to make Lucy Hoppe, you know, she is literally uh, embodying the clash between East and West within her body. And that's part of her struggle to sort of reconcile with both sides of her identity in order to, to find happiness. I also have a lot of um, friends and relatives who happen to be Hoppe, who are biracial. And it's such a unique what is the right word? It's such a unique situation to find yourself born into, I think. Um, I was talking to Nigel Barker, you know, famous fashion photographer yesterday, and he is part Sri Lankan, part British. Mm -hmm. And he pointed out that until about 60 years ago, there really were very few biracial people because there were actually laws against it in Asia, in India, in places like that where whites mm -hmm. could not marry into could up marry with, with the, the locals, you know, in, in all the countries they were colonizing. Um, so it's a fairly new phenomenon. And it has created this interesting community of people who all have extremely diverse, different experiences in how they grow up and experience the world. No two experiences are alike. And, and so I really wanted to explore that and found my way in with, with a character like Lucy. She makes her such a fascinating and unique character. I love interesting protagonists. <laughs> and I think most people do would agree. No. <laughs> so if you can, well, what's next for you, Kevin? Can you give us an interesting sneak peek of maybe what's coming down the line? Well, Sex and Vanity is the first book in a new trilogy that I'm writing. It's not going to be a conventional trilogy, though, because, you know, most trilogies, the story continues from book one, two, and three. Um, the story of Lucy is pretty much complete. What links this, these next two books to the first one are basically cities. Um, I'm calling it my cities trilogy. So this first book, Sex and Vanity, was really my love letter to New York, you know, where I lived for over two decades. And the next book will be set in London, and the last book will be set in Paris. So it's New York, London, Paris, you know, very sort of continental. And there will be, you know, you might see Lucy again in one or two of the follow-up books, but she's not going to be a main character. There will be new characters, new storylines, um, but built around sort of, you know, these cities that almost become characters in the book themselves. So, and will we be getting any exotic locales like Capri? There will always be a sort of minor city involved as well. So, you know, there was Capri in New York here. The next book will have London and a city that shall for now remain unnamed. Um, you know, I don't want to give away too many spoilers. But, um, yeah. yeah, I you know, I, I like looking at dualities. I look, like looking at the paradoxes of, of you know, sort of um, having an, an opposing city. Capri, to me, was this romantic kind of mythical, magical playground. And then New York for her was rooted in reality. You know, she had to go back to reality and, and really face her life there. Um, so I'm going to be playing with those motifs more in future books. Ooh, can't wait to, to see what's next then. <laughs> or, or look for the next book. I have to write it first, right? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's easy enough. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Surely. <laughs> 
every book is its, is its own private torture, you know? So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, I think it's, it's sort of like having a kid. You sort of, you know, it's, there's a long gestation period and then there's the agony um, and the ecstasy. And then after a while, you're like, I can't believe I actually created that. Um, you know, where did it come from? Uh, and it takes a life of its own the minute you sort of release it to the world. As librarians, we love to ask this question. Uh, what are you reading or what would you recommend to our listeners? Wow, the list is long. Um, I'm currently reading a book called The Last Kings of Shanghai. And you'll have to look up the author because I cannot remember for the life of me. But it's, an, it's a nonfiction book. And it's about two families that were pivotal in really the success of Shanghai becoming this international um, cosmopolitan city back in the earlier part of the 20th century. Um, the Sassoons and the Kaduris, they were both Iranian, no, I'm sorry, Iraqi Jewish families that found their way to China and were really kind of pivotal in, in really the history of China in many ways. Um, the Sassoons controlled the opium trade into China. Many negative and positive consequences, you know, as a result of, of all that. Um, and the Kaduris, you know, who I think initially were the young family joining the, the Sassoons, they, they sort of branched out on their own. And today they are most well known for being the owners of the Peninsula Hotel Group. Um, this is a, ch a chain of, you know, some of the most amazing, beautifully run hotels in the world. Um, the iconic Peninsula Hotel in, in Hong Kong is, is, you know, one of my favorite places on the planet. So it really delves into their history and, and how starting in the 1850s, these families came and found their way to China and were pivotal in the economy of the country and um, the politics and, and what led to everything else happening <laughs> in the 20th century. So that's a fascinating book. Um, on the fiction side, one of my favorite books this summer was Christopher Bolland's A Beautiful Crime. I don't know if you know that book. It's set in Venice, and it is a kind of, you know, Ripley-esque adventure. Um, there's, a, there's a con, there's a scam, there's murder, there's romance, and it's set in this lush surrounding of Venice. And it's a very insider view of Venice, I should say. Um, and I, it was just such an amazing kind of escape for me into a different world I knew nothing about and beautifully written. I know of it. I have not had the pleasure of reading it yet, but it is definitely on my list. Do yourself a favor. It's, it's, it's a really fun book. I've, I've really discovered all his books. Um, you know, after reading that book, I read The Destroyers, which was his previous novel. That was set in the Greek islands. And um, I think after um, The Last Kings of Shanghai, I'm going to be reading his first novel, Orient, which is not about the Orient. It's about Orient Long Island. Ah. Or it's set in Orient Long Island. <laughs> so a deceptive title. Some great recommendations there. So how would our patrons find out more about you? Do you have a, a place or something that you could recommend to them? Um, well, you know, they could go to my website, which is just kevinquanbooks.com. And there they will be linked to all my social media, which I have to admit I'm not very good at. Um, I'm still very much a Luddite, but <laughs> I, I do post, you know, current stories, current news on my, my Facebook author page, which is just really, it's all Kevin Kwan books, you know, and on Instagram, if you want, I want to see pictures of Capri and really experience the places I'm writing about in the new novel, go to Kevin Kwan books on Instagram. And um, I've been sort of, you know, as 
as we said, you know, if we can't actually be in Capri this summer, I can at least share some pictures there from past trips and um, link them to, you know, very pivotal moments in my book. Or definitely check out Instagram for sure, because those pictures are just gorgeous, especially that first picture you have, uh, like the view of the island and the way the buildings, the white buildings are all sort of stacked. That's like one of my favorite pictures there. It's just, yeah, it's really, it's a place that you cannot actually believe exists. It, it looks like it's straight out of fantasy. So it's, um, you know, I was, I've been lucky enough to travel there quite a bit. And I would, you know, suggest people put it on the top of their list, you know, once we can all start traveling again and, and do spend more than one day there. You know, people make the mistake of, of making Capri a day trip. And so they flood in with 50,000 other tourists, you know, from ferries and cruise ships. And they don't really get a sense of the island because you're rushing around in crowds. It's hot. The island really comes alive once those people leave, (laughs) you know, and it becomes a small, relaxed island and the locals come out and the sun sets and it's, it's really, truly lovely. Nothing against tourists, by the way. I was one too um, the first time I was there, you know, and enjoyed it very much. But there's so much more to the island than meets the eye that, you know, that really kind of begs you to sort of spend more time there. Yeah, it seems like a great place to just sit, drink some coffee and just people watch, I bet. Oh, yeah. I mean, their main piazza is this enchanting little hilltop piazza. And there are five different competing cafes you can choose from, you know, sort of lining the square. And um, it's, it's kind of funny, you know, the, the competition and the rivalries be- between these five cafes that are literally, you know, neck and neck against each other. Um, and they're all trying to, you know, steal clients from each other all the time. And, <laughs> and the thing is, they're, they're all saving, serving the exact same food and the exact same coffee. <laughs> like, I've, I've never noticed a discernible difference. So I guess it's just where you want to sit in the piazza that night. Because uh, they have basically the identical menus. And I think they probably share the same kitchen. So um, it's, it's kind of funny what happens on a, little, on a tiny island that's you know, very dependent on tourism. Sounds so fascinating. Mentally, I'm already there. And of right. course, there are great books you can read to inspire you, you know, besides mine. Not to call my book a great book, but you know, Graham Greene wrote an amazing book called, you know, I think it's called On Capri. So did Shirley Hazard. So worth checking out. Yeah, most certainly. Uh, so before we go out, was there anything you'd like to add? Um, I can't really think of anything else. Um, thank you. Thank you for doing what you do. I mean, libraries have been such an important part of my life. You know, my aunt was a librarian and she was really a key person in my life who really kind of introduced me to the world of books, allowed me to borrow from her library. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I spent a lot of, um, of a lot of my childhood at her library, actually, in Singapore wandering through the stacks and and I've always loved being in libraries ever since. So thank you for doing what you do. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's our pleasure. We love to read and thank you for writing because we couldn't read without, without the writing. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. I'll keep trying. How's that? (laughs) It's a deal. Our guest today was Kevin Kwan. His latest book, Sex and Vanity and previous titles are available at your Kirkwood public library and wherever good books are sold. Kevin, it was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for being here today. It really was. Thanks so much for making the time to do this podcast. Really appreciate it. If there are two things librarians absolutely love talking about, well, it's book recommendations and lifelong learning. So we transition now from our conversation with author Kevin Kwan to KPL's ongoing civic segment, where Jagish and I had the opportunity to speak with Missouri Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft about elections. Jay, thank you so much for joining us. 
thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for for talking about elections it's you know it, it's it's a foundation of of our form of government that people participate it's a you know we call it a democracy it's also a republic it's got a constitution it's kind of a mashup of all three but the one thing it requires is citizen input good citizens practicing good citizenship educating themselves on the issues and participating because you know frankly when people do not vote we lose their wisdom and what we want is the largest most comprehensive if you will corporate mass of wisdom that we can use to, to apply to problems or opportunities we see as a state and a nation and it is vitally important that people participate i'm happy that we just had an august primary election in missouri that i think we had about 30 percent more people participate in in 2020 than did in 2016. it was still far fewer people than should have participated but i'm glad to see the number at least go up and i'm glad to see that we didn't have problems with long lines we didn't have a lot of confusion or anything over the new ways that people could vote this year that people could do an absentee ballot and we had uh, special uh, excuses for people that are say over the age, 65 or older or have some of those underlying issues that could make COVID-19 more especially more dangerous for them. Uh, we saw people taking advantage of this year's ability to for any registered voter in the state of Missouri to request a mail-in ballot and mail that back in and and since you know this is a library's call I should give a special thanks to libraries across the state for helping to get that information out for further reinforcing that when people don't know where to go for an answer, when people need help, when they need research, the library really is that new town center where there will be a professional, where they're open after four o'clock or 4.30 on weekdays, where they're open on weekends, even in COVID we're seeing that, and where you can get help. And uh, libraries did a great job educating people about the election, how they could vote. Uh, we saw libraries across the state adding on notaries public to help people to get ballots notarized when they needed to. And I obviously love elections, love people speaking. I love that public participation, but I love how libraries stepped up to once again, be a part of the civic discussion, not telling people what to do, but being there to assist people in allowing those individuals to do what they wanted to do and to do it better. No argument here, helping uh, citizens get registered to vote is one of the most proudest things I feel I do. Well, it's, it's a great thing. It is sadly a lot of people don't get registered to vote. And then, of course, people that are registered don't vote, but it's easy to get registered to vote. I don't know if every library across the state has uh, registration applications. Most of them do. And even the ones that don't have them printed out are happy to print out them for people that request that are happy to, to help people fill them out. You can use the computers at libraries to go ahead and, and register to vote online through the Missouri Secretary of State's website. Just trying to get people more involved in a civic manner um, and not just involved, but helping them to self-educate. What we need are not only people that will participate and of course as a precursor to that register, but people that are willing to spend the time to get knowledgeable, to kick the tires of all the candidates, to peer a little bit closer than some candidates or issue uh, groups would want them do to really decide what is best, frankly, for handing the blessing of living in the greatest country in the world off to the next generation and safeguarding that for future generations.
it's it's a way for people to get their voices heard. It is the, it's one and it's a very simple way. All you got to do is vote. And it's not just a right or a privilege. It's a responsibility. I got to live here and I have so much more opportunity than I would have in probably any other country around the world and most certainly in specific ones. And I have that opportunity, not because of anything I did. I mean, I was born where my mom was. That's how it happens to all of us. She decides where you're born. But people that I will never know fought and worked and, and, and were diligent to make sure that the blessings they had would be passed on to future generations and that we would continue that, that quest that was started by our founding fathers to make a more perfect union. We're not done with it. We're the best there is in the country, but there's still things we can do. And I believe that the only way I can repay the people that allowed me to live in this country, enjoy the freedoms that I have, is to act in ways to make sure that I am paying that back by making sure that future generations have hopefully better opportunities than even I had. We just had our August 4th primaries. Um, my question is one of logistics. I'm curious, how do you go about coordinating the multitude of Missouri polling places? That seems like uh, almost a Herculean task to me. Well, uh, first off, any thanks or platitudes or gratitude or praise for the election should go to our local election authorities, 116 of them across the state, county clerks, directors of elections, board of elections, and to the multiple thousand poll workers across the state. You know, secretaries of state have it, the title of chief election official. Pretty much that means that other people do all the work. They send us their numbers. We add up about 116 different tallies, and then we take credit for all the work of the election. It is those 116 election authorities across the state that did that great work, and none of that can happen. We can't hold an election without the thousands of good citizens that gave up that day, frankly, for long hours and very short pay as poll workers. Because if you go vote in person, they're the people that check you in, that give you your ballot, that make sure you don't have any trouble inserting your ballot into the scanner when you're done. They're the people, if you vote by mail or vote by absentee, they're the two-person teams that go through the ballot envelopes to make sure that everything is correct and then send those envelopes with the ballot. We don't, we don't look at your ballot when we check to see if everything's correct. We just look at the envelope because how you voted has no bearing on whether or not you're allowed to vote. Um, but we can't do it without those. And you know, for the people that, that weren't, weren't able to maybe use mail-in or absentee, they could go to the polls, but they couldn't get out of the car, it was those same poll workers that took the equipment and the ballot out to that car for curbside voting to make sure that everyone could participate. And, I think that probably the worst thing about our elections is that I don't think most people understand how important the work of their friends that their kids played sports with or that they worship with or that they shop with that are the poll workers that are really the backbone of our elections. They do not get enough thanks or praise. And um, some of the stories that I've heard about poll workers in office in August going above and beyond what you would expect. And, they're not always treated very nicely. Um, pretty much every poll worker that's worked a primary election has had at least one voter yell at them when they asked what vote, what ballot that voter wanted. They weren't trying to be nosy. They just needed to know which one to give them. But it's a wonderful thing that poll workers do. And um, I just, I cannot praise them enough. And also anybody that sees this or listens to this, 
that has the time would love for you to sign up and be a poll worker. We're going to need more of them in November. And that's probably the most important thing that this office is working on with regard to November is how do we make sure there's an overabundance of poll workers. If you look at Wisconsin, where they had people stand in line for four hours and it was just a complete mess. If you look at the problems they had in other states, it all came down to not having enough poll workers and good poll workers. When you have good poll workers, you can have lots of polling places, you can have short lines, you have workers that can figure out problems quickly and, and can help voters. And um, I, I, I only have an hour. I can't talk about how great poll workers are long <laughs> enough. I, I would agree that it's fairly thankless and, uh, and we need to appreciate how important the poll workers are. And if any of our listeners wanted to volunteer to be a poll worker, how would they go about doing that? You know, they can always call up their local election authority. If they're in St. Louis County, that would be the St. Louis County Board of Elections. If they're St. Uh, Charles, that'd be the, the director of elections there. But the easiest way if they want is just to uh, go to sos.mo.gov or call the Secretary of State's office or govotemissouri.gov. We will help them get signed up for that. I, I can trust you. If they volunteer, they will be asked to participate in every election until the day they die. They will be that well loved. <laughs> and we'll also make sure we get a link on the show notes as well. That's great. So our next question, since there is another election coming up uh, in November, what is the deadline to register for that election? The deadline to register is October 7th. Sorry, uh, I had to make sure I didn't say July 22nd. That was the date to register for the August primary, and I've, I've got to shift gears now. Um, but if you register by October 7th, uh, and my staff helps me out to make sure I know that, uh, then you will be allowed to vote. And look, once you register, you don't have to re-register unless you move out of the jurisdiction. So if, if you register to vote uh, this year, let's say by, by that October 7th, and you don't vote for 30 years, you're not removed from the polls. Now, if you do move within the jurisdiction, we'd like you to update your mailing address so that we send you to the right poll. And if you move, say, from St. Louis to St. Charles County, those are different election authorities, so you do need to re-register. But you only have to register once, and if you don't move, you are eligible to vote till the day you die. We do not take you off. Actually, the Secretary of State's office never takes anybody off the rolls. Anyone that's removed from the rolls, that is done by the local election authority uh, because we want there to be a bias in favor of not removing people unless we're certain that they should. And we believe that the local election authority, be that the board of elections or the county clerk, can do a better job of saying, wait a minute, is this really the same person that died or is this a, a different person with the same name? So if I do move and need to update my... Um my registration. How do I accomplish that? You can go ahead and use the voter registration form to do that. You check on that, that you're just updating it. What I should mention is, let's say you're, you're in St. Louis County and then you move within St. Louis County, although we'd love for you to update that before election day to make it easier. If you just move within your election jurisdiction, you can update it on the election day. It'll take you an extra probably 10 or 15 minutes, but you'll still be able to vote. We'd like you to do it ahead of time, but don't let that stop you from participating. So with COVID-19 pandemic being on everyone's minds, what steps uh, in the polling places are implemented to safeguard voters' health? If I'm concerned about infections, what are my options? Well, the, the first thing I'd say is, 
what we've done is we've supplied all sorts of sanitizer, masks, face shields, distancing strips. We've we've given out uh, $4.5 million across the state, divvied that up between the 116 election authorities so that they can uh, use those funds for increased cost of protecting voters during COVID. What we've seen a lot of them do is kind of buy the plexiglass shields that you might see in a kind of like you'd see at a bank or that the grocery stores have put up. Um, we've seen single-use pens used or single-use styluses. Instead of getting a sticker, you have a pen and you're the only one that touches that pen and that pen says, I vote. And they say, just take the pen with you. Um, November election will be the safest from a disease or virus standpoint election that anyone in Missouri has ever voted in for November election. You know, November is a time of the flu. It was the time of H1N1 and other things. We have never taken the sort of physical distancing. I, I hate to say social distancing. This is kind of a time in our country when we need to be six feet apart, apart but we still need to come together. So I, I prefer physical distancing as opposed to social distancing. But we've never taken the steps, that, the, the steps that are being taken for people to be safe with the disinfectants, the masks, the face shields, the, the, the six-foot separations. Uh, we've seen polling in, in the August election. I believe we had 21 election jurisdictions that increased the number of polling places so they could spread people out better. We've had other election authorities that have said, you know what, we're decreasing the polling places, but instead of being in that small little town city hall where you can barely fit five people in and then this small one we're going to combine those and instead of having them in these two tiny buildings we're going to put them in in the high school gymnasium so that we can have everybody eat although it's fewer polling places we can spread you out better we can say go in this door for this polling place come out this other door go in this door and really move people apart so from the standpoint of voting in person it's going to be the safest election november election people have ever voted in and I, I want to highlight, I know there's been, I, I don't want to be controversial, but the, the best way to know your vote counts is to vote in person. You don't have to worry about the mail service. We had a lady in St. Louis County that called us. She mailed in her absentee ballot six days before the election. It took up 14 days to get back. That ballot didn't count. I can't control the post office. I'm, I'm not sure anybody can, but I know I can. Um, <laughs> We, if you if you if you go in person when you run your ballot through the scanner, if the scanner thinks there's a problem with your ballot, you get a second chance to correct it. Now you don't have to. If you want to avoid part of the ballot where you voted for multiple people for the same election, you can do that. But if the scanner can't read your mail-in ballot, you're not there to to verify what you meant or to correct it. Also, you don't have to worry about whether or not it was notarized or needed to be notarized or whether or not your signature matched. So I want to encourage everybody to go in person. A, it's the best way to make sure, sure your vote counts. It's easiest on the election administration. And also it helps us to get the election results in more quickly. And I really think it helps people to have confidence in an election where they get results quickly. We want them to be accurate too. But when we get a, a large uh, avalanche of mail-in and absentee ballots at the last minute, that can actually delay. And we're concerned that in November, we may not have election results on Tuesday night, especially if they're close races. But maybe for whatever reason, you can't participate in person or, you know, you've got an underlying issue. You're 80 years old. You're, 
you have some, you know, it just doesn't make sense. You should be a little bit more cautious in the age of COVID. If you meet the requirements, you can get that absentee ballot, especially if you meet any of the COVID requirements, it doesn't even need to be notarized. Um, but there are other things where you can outside of the jurisdiction or a religious concern or whatnot, where you can vote absentee. Those do need to be notarized. And then also any person in the state that's a registered voter may request a mail-in ballot. That ballot will be mailed to them. By law, they must mail it back to the election authority. Um, it will need to be notarized, but no one in the state actually has to go to the polling place to vote. And of course, if you want kind of a happy medium, we have curbside voting that we allow people to do in this state where maybe you can get in your car and go to the polling place because you don't want to trust the, the post office and we can have a two-person team bring your, your, your ballot out to you, a Republican and a Democrat or Democrat and Republican to be nonpartisan, and then you'll vote that ballot and then they'll take that right in and it'll be cast and it'll be sent through the machine for you. So there are a myriad of ways uh, that the people of this state can vote. The people of the state just need to look at which one works best for them. In fact, in our municipal elections in June, we actually had election authorities that were doing drive-through voting. Just like we have drive-through COVID testing, they set up lanes on a parking lot with equipment. You drive up, here's your ballot, vote. You slide it through this machine and drive off. You know, there's a lot of talk. Unfortunately, a lot of times it's politicized. The people that are really in control of how elections are run are your local election authority and your friends and neighbors that are poll workers. And that gives me confidence that it's not some third party foreign power that's doing it's my friends, it's my neighbors, it's people that are giving up their time to make sure that other individuals can participate. So that's why people should have faith. They should know that it's safe. And first and foremost, they should get out and make sure their voice is heard. So switching gears a little from elections, uh, since uh, the, we have the Secretary of State here, we would love to talk about libraries, one of our favorite subjects, most certainly. Could you speak a little bit about the wonderful resources available through libraries? Uh, specifically, well, we wanted to ask you about the Wolfner Library. You know, we only have an hour, so I can't cover everything at libraries. <laughs> Uh, but the Wolfner Library is, I believe, the best library in the country, at least state-led, to provide options for people that because of uh, difficulties with vision or lack thereof, can't read the general book that gets published and is in most libraries. We have large print books. We have audio books. Because we have a copyright exemption, uh, individuals that meet the Wolfner Library requirements. We can make an audio book of any book that's been published and just ignore copyright law. It is a wonderful thing. We have book clubs for individuals that are, are have difficulty with seeing. We have braille books. We have braille games. We have games that are designed to, to teach people braille. We, uh, and, and really I shouldn't say we because I just, I get to participate in a little bit of it. It's a wonderful thing that uh, uh, Robin does with the State Library and the Wolfner Library people. It is a great resource for anyone that uh, has lost their sight, is losing their sight, just isn't able to read what you would normally find uh, at the bookstore to make sure that we can draw people back into being a part of society. And the Wolfner Library and our Missouri libraries across the state do a great job of that. So how does uh, one become a member of the Wolfner Library? I know that you can fill out an application and get a, a Missouri State Library card. Is it 
similar process with the Wolfner Library. It's, it's a very similar process. We have the Wolfner Library applications. Those can be gotten online from the Secretary of State's website. We also have worked with libraries. Now, not all libraries do this, and there are pros and cons about it, so I, I don't mean to is it don't do it, but a lot of libraries, we used to work with them so that in all their large print books in, in, their, in their library, libraries across the state, they would actually have in the front cover uh, a sticker that talked about the Wolfner Library. We, we work with libraries across the state to make sure that they have applications. We've also been known to work with uh, uh, different organizations uh, for the blind or the, or the, the, the uh, visually impaired We've worked with medical groups to try to get the word out about it. Some of our best ambassadors for the program, though, are our participants that have seen what it, how it works and, and what it does. It's always great when I'm traveling to state to have someone come up to me and say, I use Wolfner, or my dad uses Wolfner, or my mom uses Wolfner. They've used it for so long. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. And I generally keep Braille business cards with me in case I run into individuals that read Braille uh, that don't know about Wolfner to get the word out. But we are continuing to try to, to get the word out there about that and to expand our program. Uh, we're looking at expanding our ability to uh, create books, audio books. We have one sound room that we use for that uh, at the office here. We're looking at a second one and we're always looking at getting more volunteers so that we can have an even greater repository of audio and Braille books for our participants. Very interesting. If someone wanted to volunteer to for the audio for Wolfner Library, how would they go about doing that? You know, the easiest way is once again to just go to our website, sos.mo.gov. You go there, you can contact us on the web, you can give us a call. We will not let you fall through the cracks. If you're willing to volunteer, we will train you. Uh, we will get you on board. And I will tell you, everyone that does that finds that it is an incredibly rewarding thing to do because you will hear stories. You will get emails that we can write to you from someone that was able to listen to a book because you read it and you will know that you changed lives. So considering our time is limited, what would you say is your favorite uh, service the State Library offers? I love the help that we give to local libraries. I love being a sounding board and a resource, not only with the finances we provide them, but being connecting people, being able to say, have you thought about doing it this way? This library over here is doing this, or this library is, is allowing people to rent out baking pans, or they've started doing fishing rods or kites, or just, it's amazing to me the originality and the services that libraries use. I was, I was in Bon Terre last, uh, uh, week ago, Thursday, last Thursday, I think it was. And I got to stop in to see the, the little Bon Terre library. And it's just the brightness, the, the care that has gone into making those libraries across the state. Every library is different because the needs of every locale are different. You know, what, what the people of Bon Terre need is different than, oh, I was in Perryville uh like two days later and 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 uh got to go by unfortunately they they were closing it for covid cleaning so i didn't actually get to go in i got to peer through the windows but i love to see what libraries are doing on the local level i love the fact how even the branches themselves differentiate between what do the people of this locality and i look at libraries being the place that 
can be that glue that holds society together, that, that brings people from every walk of life and says, whosoever may walk through these doors, we're going to serve you. We're going to give you the resources needed, be it books, be it STEM kits and computers, be it so you can start your business so a dad can can loan out two fishing rods to go fishing with his son. So, you know, whatever. I love that. I love that sense of community. I love that sense. There's a story about the Salvation Army that the, the founder of the Salvation Army, I don't know if it's true or not. It's a great story. So, and, hey, I'm a politician. So I'll tell it anyway. But the story is that on his deathbed, he had the ability to enough money to send a short telegram to every one of the, the Salvation of Ar Army locations across the world. And he couldn't send a long one because of the cost. And he sent a one word telegram and it said, and the one word was others. Because that was what he wanted the ministry and the message of the Salvation Army to be, that those people were there for others. And I think that's true of library and librarians and library staff across the state. They're not there to get rich. Wouldn't mind if they did. They're not there obviously for power or prestige. They're there for others. They're there because when they go home to, and go to sleep at night, they can know that they made a difference. They made other people's lives better. I mean, that's public service in a nutshell. And I don't know of a higher calling than spending your days and your life not aggrandizing yourself, but making other people better. That's what our libraries do. So one thing we always like to ask our guest speaker is, what are you reading right now? And I know you're probably very busy, so <laughs> don't know if you have the time, but. We would also accept what's your favorite book. I am not really reading a book right now. There's a new biography on Eric Liddell, uh, the British Olympic gold medalist runner, Scottish, that I'd like to read. But I'm probably not really jumping into a book like that until after November. Yeah, um, but, um, I love biographies. I, I like mysteries. I do some non uh, do some fiction, but you know, there's just there's a solidity I think to nonfiction. I love inspiring true stories about people. I love to I love to read books that I think I will learn from, not just in a value sense and how can I be a better person and and what do I need to work on to be the best person I can be. Um, but in a knowledge base also. And um, last week I was traveling. I got to, had to, traveled on a, at least two days. I got to my location earlier than I needed to. And my natural inclination was to let me go see what the library is like, how they're doing. And, and just, I just feel comfortable in a library. I was so happy to go to Missouri River Regional here. I, I still think of as Thomas Jefferson when they finally opened up after COVID. You know, it just wasn't fully open. You know, you didn't have all the chairs to sit at. And I understand libraries are doing a great job and, and, and navigating COVID, but it was just so nice to see it open. It just was a welcome sight. Well, if you're ever in Kirkwood, we'll have you, we'd love to have you over at Kirkwood Public Library. Is it better if I can bring one of those big checks from a, a state grant with me? Oh, yeah, well, definitely. That would help. <laughs> <laughs> I don't we'd think they'd argue too hard. <laughs> As we close up the, uh, the interview today, what are maybe some of your final thoughts and, and that you want to pass on to our listeners about libraries and elections and things that we should be thinking about in this moment of history? 
with regard to elections, we mentioned that October 7th voter registration deadline. I shouldn't have to say it again, but if you're not registered, let me politely say what's wrong with you. Go get registered. It's easy. <laughs> so do it. by. And there's, you don't need to wait till October 7th. Go do it now. And um, call your local library. We're more than happy to help you get registered. If you have any questions, the librarians, the staff will pick up the phone October 21st. Last day to request an absentee or mail-in ballot, but don't wait that long. Use your library. And for those of you that use your library, that have had kids, that have enjoyed using it, get involved with your library. I don't think a lot of people realize how much of the work done at libraries is done by volunteers, is done by a nonprofit, a friends of the library type organization that's passing that along. You know, our office tries to help libraries, but it starts with the local community. It starts with the local staff, the librarians, and, and then the townspeople supporting that library. And I can't imagine a town moving in the right direction if its library isn't growing, if people aren't taking part in that and helping to just knit the community together so people can be the best that they can be. Good words to go out on. Our guest today was Missouri Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft. Jay, thank you so much for joining us and talking about this important subject. Thanks for having me. Well, Jagish and I must dash to go check our voter registration, and then we're going to daydream about Capri, which will just leave me enough time to thank best-selling author of Sex and Vanity, Kevin Kwan, and Missouri Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft for joining us today. And we leave you now on the important words of American social reformer Susan B. Anthony. Someone struggled for your right to vote use it. Please vote America, and we'll see you next week.